All right, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open to the book of Genesis. And if you didn't on the way in, grab one of the ESV Genesis uh, journals. We've got plenty of them out there um, for taking notes as we walk through this book. Um, You'll recall that our plan is to go all the way through this glorious book over the coming year or so, but doing it in smaller chunks uh, with some New Testament mixed in. So we've already walked through Genesis 1 through 3, And now we'll walk from Genesis 4 all the way through Genesis chapter 11 before taking another break. So quickly, just to catch us up to speed, in chapter 1 of Genesis, we saw God create everything, bringing order out of chaos. He was the transcendent God, Elohim, who created everyone and everything. In chapter 2, we zoomed in on God's creation of man and woman, on the marriage relationship. Further, we saw that God not only is Elohim, but we saw him as Yahweh Elohim. He's the imminent, near, close, covenant-making God. We saw him institute the covenant of works where he gave mankind one good and gracious rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In chapter 3, we saw it all come crashing down. Satan, the serpent, entered the garden, tempted Eve. She took Satan's twisted words. She ate the fruit and gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her. He ate as well. Sin, brokenness, and death entered the world. Thankfully, that wasn't the end of the story, was it? God searched them out. He patiently asked Adam and Eve a series of questions as the good father that he is. He then, as a just God, gave a series of curses, but with a glorious promise. God directly cursed Satan, then childbearing, then the ground. But in Genesis 3.15, look what he promised. Genesis 3.15, speaking to Satan, he said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God tells us two truths. Number one, There's going to be war between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. And second, the offspring of Eve will win. He'll crush the head of the serpent. This promise will continue to be key, not only in the book of Genesis, but for the rest of the Bible. And after that promise, in Genesis 3.15... We saw that God would kill an animal to adequately cover Adam and Eve's sin and shame. He's such a gracious and merciful God. We saw all of that in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Okay, having been caught up to speed, let's jump back into Genesis, into today's text. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now Adam knew his wife, 
and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offspring. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, You have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. Just like every other text in Genesis and in scripture as a whole, this one's amazing. I've said this a hundred times at least. You either have to believe that God's word is divinely inspired or that every single book is written by literary geniuses on par with Shakespeare, the smartest writers ever alive. Either or, there's nothing in between. We've already seen this in Genesis 1 through 3. But this text is no different. It's highly structured for meaning, to make sure that we get the point. The way that Moses wrote this section is like Michelangelo with the Sistine Chapel. No brushstrokes were wasted or unintentional here. We noted Moses' use of the number seven in the first couple of chapters, how he used certain words in multiples of seven for structure. Well, he's still doing it. In our text today, the name Abel occurs seven times, and the name Cain, 14 times. The word brother appears seven times, and most significantly, by the time we get to verse 26 next week, The last verse of the first major section of Genesis, we read this. At that time, the people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. That word Lord will mark the 70th time he uses one of the divine names. What's my point? 
Well, my point is this. Moses isn't just telling us a simple story. He's definitely teaching us a real, historical, true narrative. But he's doing it with the explicit goal of teaching us something. It'd be like one of us picking up a piece of paper on the ground that had Roman numerals 1, 2, and 3, followed by A, B, C, and D on it. We'd look at it, and we'd know that it's a structured teaching outline. Same here. So, what's Moses trying to teach us? I'll give you the bottom line up front. I believe he's trying to teach us two distinct truths here. Number one... Sin and its consequences are spiraling and expanding in God's world. They're getting out of control quickly. Second, the two lines of humanity, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, the faithless and the faithful, are clearly emerging in this text. Let's see how Moses does this. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. Let's stop right there. Do you guys remember the repetitive Genesis cycle that we talked about last time? Sin, judgment, hope. Sin, judgment, hope. Sin, judgment, hope. Over and over and over again throughout the book of Genesis. Well, in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, there was judgment. And then in 3.15, a promise of hope. A promise of what? Offspring offspring that would crush Satan's head. Well, look where this chapter starts out. With offspring. Incredible hope here. If if we were reading this story for the first time, we'd think, here he is. Here's the promise to Genesis 3.15. Here's the offspring. Look at verse 1 of our text. Now Adam knew his wife Eve... And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, this verse might be easy for us just to pass by. But remember, there's no throwaway brushstrokes here. I believe that Moses, even from this very first sentence, is trying to show us something here. Look at what Eve says. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. What's the nature of this statement? Is it grateful and God-honoring? Maybe, but maybe not. The English words, with the help of, actually aren't in the text. The Hebrew reads, I have created with Yahweh. I have created With Yahweh. There seems to be a sense of pride there, sharing the credit for conception with God Himself. John Selhammer here comments this. He says, Throughout the narratives that make up the book of Genesis, a recurring theme is that of the attempt and failure of human effort in obtaining a blessing that only God can give. God continuously promised man a blessing. And man pushed it aside in favor of his own attempts at the blessing. The story of the building of the city of Babylon is the most familiar of such narratives. In particular, Eve's situation brings to mind that of Sarah's attempt to achieve the blessing through her handmaiden, Hagar. 
Just as Sarah had tried to bring about the fulfillment of God's promised seed on her own, so also Eve's words give expression to her confidence in her own ability to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. Further, look at the contrast between what Eve says here in verse 1 with what she says in verse 25, which we'll get to next week. Look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Do you see the difference between I have created with Yahweh versus God has appointed for me? The sin of pride from chapter 3 seems to continue on here in chapter 4, verse 1. Regardless, Eve does believe that Cain is the answer to Genesis 3.15. She believes that he's going to be the snake crusher. In fact, the birth of Abel almost seems like an afterthought, doesn't it? Look at verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. That's it. His name, Abel, or, or Havel here, literally means breath or mist or even vanity. Anyone know where we see this word in a concentrated way in the Old Testament? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity. That's that word, Havel. That's what he's named. Havel of Havel. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is Havel or vanity. Havel means vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. Unfortunately, that became a prophetic name. Verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Again, no throwaway lines here. What's Moses doing? He's painting with contrast, isn't he? And what does he say? Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain, a worker of the ground. Now, there's nothing wrong with either of these professions. In fact, both were helpful to society going forward. But Moses is wanting to kind of tip his cap to something specific here. Abel's job reminds us of Genesis 1.28, where Adam was given dominion over all the animals of the earth. What about Cain's job? Genesis 3.23. This is after the fall. God's curses, God's judgment. Genesis 3.23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Cain's job here in chapter 4 is explicitly associated with the curse. Let's keep going. Verse 3. In the course of time... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So the two brothers go to church. They're, they're bringing offerings to the Lord. It's a word that means gift or present. And in the Old Testament, it's almost always in the context of worship. Cain, again, this contrast is taking place. Cain brings a gift from his place of employment, and Abel does also. Picture this. 
They bring their offerings. The worship service ends. The benedictions proclaimed over the people. And just outside the door on the way out isn't the pastor. It's God himself. And he's rating the congregants' worship. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Can you imagine that? God cares how he's worshipped. And God himself stands outside this worship service to rate their offerings. Further, look at how their offerings are connected to who they are. It doesn't just say God had regard for the offering and not for the other offering. No, it says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Hear this loud and clear. How you worship has everything to do with who you are. How you worship has everything to do with who you are. God knows this. And so the million-dollar question is, why did God have regard for Abel and for his offering, but not for Cain and his offering? Well, while there's lots of speculation here, I believe there's at least two biblical clues. Number one the descriptions of the offerings themselves in the text. Look at the difference here. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Then Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. A straightforward reading of the text seems like Cain brought any old offering, whereas Abel brought the first and the best. Cain certainly brought an offering, but it seems half-hearted, not able. His offering looks to be full-throttle, all-in worship and honor of God. But it's even more than just the offerings themselves, as important as that is. Our second biblical clue comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. What's Hebrews chapter 11 known as? The hall of faith. Hebrews 11.4. It says, by faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He's still speaking in this moment, by the way. What's God's word telling us? He's telling us that that on top of the superior quality of Abel's offering, he offered it by faith. He trusted God. Do you see that? His, His heart was in the right place. You remember what Abel's name means? Vapor or mist, breath. Yet, Because of his faith, Hebrews tells us that he'll be remembered for eternity. 
One of my friends rightly said about this text that heaven's headlines are going to be much different than ours. That's right. On earth, he probably seemed, it's probably seemed like this man vapor wasn't all that significant. But his faith was exemplary. We'll be talking about him forever. At the end of the day, do you see the massive contrast between these two brothers and their offerings? One came with an offering in faith that really cost him something. He came with a heart toward God. The other was simply going through the motions religiously. One went out of his way to please God. The other merely worshipped out of duty. Maybe that's you this morning, or this year, or this decade. You're here, but you're not here. You're going through the motions and playing a religious game, but you're not all in in faith. Whether you're young or old, I'm pleading with you this morning. Don't play that game. While you might be able to fool others or fool me when I shake your hand outside the door, you're not fooling God. He sees your heart. He sees my heart. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, does God have regard for my offerings? Is my life a life of faith? So, what happens After Cain gets confronted here. So Cain was very angry. His face fell. So after being confronted by God himself, instead of repentance, Cain gets angry. So angry that it's visible in his face. You can imagine that. And how does God respond to this? Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Isn't this incredibly gracious of God? Cain, a tiny dust particle disrespects the Lord and creator of the universe, then gets angry about it. Think about that. God would have been justified in completely destroying Cain on the spot. But he doesn't. Instead, God comes to him in a fatherly posture, asking a heart question, and then giving Cain a gracious warning. Cain, Why are you angry? God knows the answer to this question, but he wants Cain to ask the question himself in his heart. What is it about my offering being rejected that makes me so mad? He's wanting Cain to ask that question. Then God gives him some advice. He can still turn things around if he does well. Finally, God gives him a dire warning. Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. 
but you must rule over it. God depicts sin as this dangerous animal, ready to pounce. It's waiting to destroy Cain. And he tells him that he must rule over it. He must master it. I wonder, do we understand sin this way? Several years ago, I heard a sermon illustration that's always stuck with me. Uh, This pastor shared a story about watching the show When Animals Attack. Have you guys seen that show? Crazy show. But in this particular episode, there's this woman doing a shampoo commercial. And she was asked to lay with her head on a lion. No surprise, the lion attacked her and mangled her severely. Later on in this episode, the lion's trainer comes out. They're interviewing this guy. And he's talking about how surprised he was that that happened. He'd raised this cub, held it, played with it, took it on walks, trained it. How many of us treat sin like this? We think that we can play with it, that we can tame it and domesticate it. It's not going to kill us. God says, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you. Do we understand sin this way? If you do, there's only one solution. You don't get up as close as the line as possible. You don't keep it with you but hidden. You don't play with it. You kill it. Romans 8.13 couldn't be any more clear. Romans 8.13, Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Teaching on this text in Romans 8, John Owen, in his amazing book titled The Mortification of Sin, he writes this, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Shortened to the point, but true. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. God is incredibly gracious for telling Cain and us this truth. He speaks this truth because he cares, as a father to a son. So, what does Cain do with this information? Verse 8 the center of the text, and the climax of our story. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. The first murder in the Bible and in the world. The murder of his brother. Behold the sinfulness of sin. The offspring that Eve thought was the promised one has turned out to be the seed of the serpent. Sin is growing and expanding and breaking God's good world here. Derek Kidner, one commentator, says, Whereas Eve had to be talked into her sin by the serpent, it appears that Cain would not be talked out of his sin even by the Lord himself. You see how sin's growing here. Unfortunately, while this this was the first murder in God's world, we all know that it wouldn't be the last. 
We could look at how many murders took place under Hitler or Stalin or Mao Zedong, and that'd be atrocious. But I want to highlight something else this morning. According to the American Life League, the total number of abortions in the U.S. from 1973 to 2020, which is the most recent stats I was looking at, were 63.6 million. 198 abortions per 1,000 live births, according to the CDC. U.S. abortions in 2020 alone were 930,160. There's 2,548 abortions per day, 106 abortions per hour, and one abortion every 34 seconds. God help us. Murder is rampant in our culture, and it has everything to do with sin in our hearts. Do we understand that? Sin isn't an out-there external problem. It's an in-here, internal problem. Look at what James says. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's exactly what we see in our text in Genesis 4. It all started in the garden, but it spread to all of humanity, and it affects us all today. So, what happened next? Cain disregards God. He murders his brother. And then look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Again, God asks a question that he already knows the answer to. Yet Cain brazenly lies and says, I don't know. And look at what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44. These are the words of Christ, John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He, speaking of Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan, a murderer from the beginning and a father of lies. Do you see what Moses is showing us here? Cain is of his father, the devil. He's a seed of the serpent. Then Cain asks this pompous question back to God. Am I my brother's keeper? So I'll ask you this morning, Christians, what's the right answer to this question? Yes, yes, you are your brother's keeper. If, if we're to survive and thrive as families, churches, and society at large, we must be responsible for each other's well-being. It's like the who's my neighbor question that Jesus gets asks. How does Jesus respond to that question? Well, by teaching a parable, not about who's his neighbor, but about how to be a good neighbor. 
how to care for those in need. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Cain. Yes, you are. Well, what happens next? Remember their Genesis cycle. Sin, we've seen that. What comes next? Judgment. Sin, judgment. Look what God says next. Verses 10 through 12. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. David Helm points out that our text has moved from worship to warning to where is your brother to what have you done. God is now coming in judgment. And look at the judgment that God gives. Remember back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned. And when God was judging there, he cursed childbearing. He cursed the ground. And Satan was the only one who was cursed directly. Do you remember that? Look here in our text. For the first time in history, a human is cursed directly. Again, making the connection between the serpent and Cain himself. Further, the ground isn't going to produce for him. And he'll be a fugitive and a wanderer. We'll look more at that next week. The point is that Cain thought that he could sin and get away with it. But that's not reality, is it? No one ultimately gets away with it. Look at what God says. He comes to Cain, and after Cain lies to him and tries to hide, he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Understand this. No one and I do mean no one, gets away with sin. You may get away with it this side of heaven, but God sees everything, and he will bring ultimate justice for every sin committed on this earth, whether you think you've gotten away with it or not. And I want to point out the importance of two words here in this sentence. God says, The voice of your brother's blood is crying out. Here it is, these two words. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me, God says. Do you understand how comforting that is? If you've ever been wronged and justice here on earth wasn't given? God himself to me. God himself hears the cries of Abel's blood. And Abel's blood calls out for justice, for vengeance, which God will ultimately deliver. If you've been treated unjustly this side of heaven, the solution isn't to just take justice into your own hands. It's to trust God, who sees all things, who will bring about perfect justice. And again, I want to bring chapter 3 to our minds. Adam and Eve sin. God seeks them out. 
He delivers curses. But they respond how? In faith. God's judgment doesn't have to be the end of the story. So, again, how does Cain respond here? Look at verses 13 and 14. God comes in judgment. Verse 13, Cain says to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. There's no repentance there. He only seems to be concerned about the punishment and himself. No remorse for the death of his brother. No conviction of sin against God. And what, that's what makes verse 15 honestly so shocking. Look at this. We've seen all of the, the ways that, that, that Cain has rebelled against God. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, to be clear, this isn't saving grace. As far as we can tell, Cain died as an unbeliever. Jude chapter 11, it says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. 1 John 3, verses 11 and 12, John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain is never spoken of in a positive manner in Scripture. So to the best of our knowledge, Cain wasn't one of God's covenant people. But God does give Cain grace here. Instead of striking him dead himself or letting someone else eventually kill him, God protects him. This is God's amazing grace and patience. A startling ray of light amidst a very dark passage. And the text finishes by telling us, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Throughout scripture, east symbolizes further away from Eden and further away from God. This is a sad moment in the Bible in a very short amount of pages. Not only did the first humans sin and rebel against God, their firstborn son murders his brother and ends up east of Eden, away from God's presence. Is there any hope for us? I mean, this whole scene is pretty dark. Sin seems to be winning in the first two seeds, and neither of them will fulfill the promise. One's dead and one's banished. If chapter 3 was the fall, this seems like the free fall. Is there any hope? Yes, there is. 
Flip with me over to chapter or Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And follow along with me from verses 18 through 24. Hebrews 12 verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to, a mount, to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And here it is, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that what? Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see that? To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, and his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I can't say that enough. So let me just ask the question. Abel's blood cried out from the ground to God. Why does Jesus' blood speak a better word? Here it is. Abel's blood, you'll remember, cried out for justice and for vengeance alone. If we all get justice alone, we all deserve wrath and death. As one pastor says, we're all part of the Cain Collective. The blood of Abel speaks the word of justice and vengeance for us. But Jesus' blood? What word does it speak? Yes, it speaks justice too. But the just wrath of God was poured out on him on the cross. And we in turn get grace and mercy, redemption, and forgiveness. Let that sit for a second. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Again, David Helm so powerfully points out that we often hear the cries in the streets of no justice and no peace. But what God's word is telling us here is no Jesus, no chance. Is there any hope for us? There is. If you're a sinner, and that's all of us, turn to Christ in faith. If you're not a Christian, I invite you this morning to turn to Jesus for the first time. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Trust that his blood speaks a better word for you, not just today, but forever. If you are a Christian, keep trusting in Christ. Keep coming to him in faith. Be thankful for the hope that we have in Christ's better blood. Let's pray.